SBS, a world of difference. You're with NITV Radio, on mobile, online and on radio. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land NITV Radio broadcasts from, the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation and their elders past and present. We also acknowledge all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander tribes and clans we broadcast to, from the mountains to the plains, from the desert to the sea, from fresh water to salt water. Yama, and welcome to NITV Radio. Coming up in your program this Monday, September 11, have a conversation with Monash University's Professor Lynette Russell, talking about uh, a new book, Time to Listen, an Indigenous Voice to Parliament, a book she co-authored, exploring the issue of the voice to Parliament through the lens of history and uh, the law. We will also be joined by Sean Cummings, Manager Indigenous Wellbeing at the New South Wales Treasury, looking at a recently published review on how to curb persistent barriers for First Nations women's participation and realisation of their full economic potential. On NITV Radio today, we also have a story on how the Manchester Museum is returning close to 200 artefacts that were taken from a remote community in the Northern Territory in the 1950s. As you'll hear, it is hoped this development will trigger other museums around the world to return similar materials. All these stories and more coming to you on NITV Radio after the latest news. And we are broadcasting from Nam on the Kulin Nation this Monday afternoon. Bertrand Tungandame, I am Bertrand Tungandame. Australia Day 1972 saw the first Aboriginal embassy directed outside Parliament. The native title legislation must be and they've walked this land so many times before anybody came. I am sorry. In this bulletin, pre-inquest rally calls to end indigenous deaths in custody. The Albanese government ramps up its campaign in support of an indigenous voice to parliament. And members of the Moroccan community in Australia express concerns for the safety of their Moroccan relatives after Friday's deadly earthquake. Friends of an indigenous man who died in police custody have gathered for a vigil outside a Queensland courthouse. 27-year-old man Stephen Lee Nixon Makila died shortly after having pressure applied to his neck by a senior constable in 2021. An inquest into Mr. Nixon Makila's death is currently being held in the Toowoomba courthouse. About 40 people have gathered outside the courthouse calling for urgent action to address indigenous deaths in custody. Since the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody released its report in 1991, there have been more than 540 First Nations deaths in custody. The Albanese government is set to ramp up its campaign in support of an Indigenous Voice to Parliament over the next few critical weeks. Environment Minister Tanya Plibersek told Channel 9 it would be vital for Yes campaigners to convince those who are still undecided about the proposal. 
She says it's an important and simple step led by Indigenous Australians to acknowledge at least 65,000 years of First Nations history. It's a way of saving money and getting better results. Uh, it, this idea came from Aboriginal people. Well over 80% of them support it. Uh, this is not a committee that has a veto over Parliament. It doesn't get to stop things happening. Uh, it doesn't run programs. It, it is a committee to give advice. It is really a lot less scary than some of the No campaign are making it out to be. In the meantime, Liberal Senator Matt Canavan is calling on the government to provide more detail ahead of the Indigenous Voice to Parliament referendum. The criticism comes as post-of-vote application for the referendum open today. Mr Canavan says Australians not currently have the information required to be able to make an informed decision. If the SIS side is serious here in the next uh, uh, five or six weeks, they actually need to... Uh, need to tell us what their plans really are. Uh, they've been hiding the details because they fear that the more of those details they give to the Australian people, uh, the stronger they'll be in saying no. Postal voting is one of the options for casting a ballot. It can also be done in person or using a phone, a phone voting system for the visually impaired. Postal vote applications for the Indigenous Voice to Parliament will open today. Governor-General David Harley will issue the legal document called a writ that will signal the start of early voting. The issuing of a writ also puts in place a seven-day deadline for people to make sure they are on the electoral roll. Former First People's Assembly of Victoria co-chair and Yes campaigner Marcus Stewart says he feels encouraged by the conversations he has been having in the community. I'm not nervous because I have faith in the Australian people and every conversation we have out there um, we're converting votes because people are understanding what this is. What we have here on the Sunday following a successful yes vote, the average Australian will wake up and it'll be business as usual. They'll go about their day, but for us, we move the dial. We actually have a mechanism to have government listen to what our people are saying. Why does it have to be in the Constitution? Because this has to be above politics. Postal voting is one of the options for casting a ballot, and the ballot can also be done in person or using a phone voting system for the visually impaired. And you can find comprehensive information about the referendum by visiting the SBS Voice Referendum portal at www.sbs.com.au slash voice referendum. Members of the Moroccan community living in Australia are expressing concern for the safety of their relatives as the death toll after Friday's earthquake continues to rise. Over 2,100 people are confirmed to have died, making it the deadliest earthquake in Morocco in more than six decades. Morocco has declared a three days of mourning and King Mohammed VI has called for prayers for the dead to be held at mosques across the country. Moroccan activist Nadia Bushti told SBS Arabic 24 she has been in constant contact with her relatives online and is deeply concerned for their safety. Since we are far away and don't know the extent of the damage caused by the earthquake, I cannot describe the feeling, especially at first, when we knew that the earthquake had occurred and didn't know the damage. As a result, we felt fear for our families with whom we communicated on the Internet.
The Moroccan government has announced a special fund to manage the effects of the earthquake. The fund will pay for an emergency rehabilitation program, repairs to damaged homes and provide support to those without shelter and food. Prime Minister Antonio Albanese has returned after attending the ASEAN, East Asia and G20 summits where he released the, the Southeast Asia Economic Strategy to 2040. The economic strategy makes 75 recommendations that aim to boost trade and investment between Australia and Southeast Asia. Minister for Communications Michelle Rowland says the government's school student broadband initiative is supporting thousands of disadvantaged families. The initiative gives families with school-aged children one year of free access to the national broadband network. 3,000 families have already been connected to the network and 20,000 eligible families have been issued with vouchers to be connected. Members of the coalition continue to question the government's decision to deny Qatar Airways' request for additional flights into Australia. Transport Minister Catherine King has faced scrutiny over the decision which saw a rejection of a bid by Qatar Airways to double the 28 weekly services it currently offers. Queensland One Nation Senator Malcolm Roberts says the opposition will continue to demand answers in Parliament this week as Prime Minister Antony Albanese arrives back in Canberra following Indo-Pacific summits in Indonesia. The opposition will be continuing to press the Transport and Infrastructure Minister Catherine King and the Prime Minister as to why the application for additional flights to and from Australia by Qatar Airways was rejected why this government has stood in the way of additional competition in the aviation sector at a time when airfares are some 50% higher than they were prior to the pandemic. Victoria's wage regulator has filed 2,425 criminal charges against one of Australia's biggest catalogue distributors for allegedly breaching child labour laws. Wage Inspectorate Victoria has filed the charges against IV distribution, accusing them of allegedly hiring more than 400 children under the age of 15 last year to deliver catalogues and flyers despite not having the appropriate permits. In Victoria, if an employer holds a child in holds a child employment permit or license, it's legal for children 11 years old and up to deliver newspapers and advertising content. The matter is expected to be heard in Melbourne's Magistrates Court on the 2nd of October. And to sport, Novak Djokovic has won his 24th Grand Slam singles title, beating Russia's Daniel Medvedev in the final of the US Open. The victory at Flushing Meadows puts Djokovic on a level with Australian female tennis star Margaret Court, who holds the all-time majors record. The clash with Medvedev was a rematch of the 2021 final, which Medvedev won in straight sets for his lone Grand Slam title. Djokovic has now won two more Grand Slam singles titles than any other men's player in history. He says the win has exceeded even his most ambitious childhood dreams. I had the childhood dream when I was seven, eight. I wanted to become the best player in the world and win Wimbledon trophy. That was that was the only thing I only thing I wanted. Um, but then when when I when I realized that you know obviously I started to dream new dreams and set new objectives, new goals. Uh, I never imagined that I would be here sitting, standing with you, talking about 
24 slams. I ne never thought that that's, that's, that would be the reality, but, uh, you know, uh, last couple of years I felt I have a chance. And now having a look at the weather around the country, Broome, sunny 37, Perth, cloud, cloud clearing 24, Adelaide sunny 22, Melbourne partly cloudy 17, Hobart cloudy 14, Albury-Wodonga sunny 17, Canberra partly cloudy 18, Wollongong sunny 19, Sydney partly cloudy 20, Newcastle partly cloudy 21, Brisbane similar conditions 23, Townsville partly cloudy 27, Keynes mostly sunny 28, Alice Springs sunny 25, Darwin sunny as well 36 degrees and the Torres Strait Islands a mostly cloudy day ahead and a top of 29 degrees. And that is NITV Radio News. NITV Radio, Monday, Wednesday, Friday at 1pm or anytime online. I am Patron Tungandame and you're listening to an ITV radio coming to you from Nam on the Kulin Nation this Monday afternoon. Coming up next, conversation with Sean Cummings, Manager Indigenous Wellbeing at the New South Wales Treasury, talking about a review by uh, the Treasury on how to curb persistent barriers for First Nations women's realisation of their full economic potential in New South Wales. We also have a story about a recent development as the Manchester Museum is returning close to 200 artefacts that were taken from a remote community in the Northern Territory in the 1950s. It is hoped that this development will trigger other museums around the world to return similar materials. But first, let's explore a time to listen, an Indigenous Voice to Parliament, a new book that seeks to answer a crucial question. Can our national silence come to an end? To find out more, I caught up with one of the co-authors. Time to Listen, an Indigenous Voice to Parliament is a new book by Professor Melissa Kasten and Professor Lynette Russell. The book explores how the need for a voice to parliament has its roots in what a renowned anthropologist termed the Great Australian Silence and also intentional colonial policies of harassment. And I'm glad to say Professor Lynette Russell has just joined us on NITV Radio to shed some light on this new book. Welcome to NITV Radio, Professor Russell. Thank you very much. Time to Listen is a book that actually the first few, two few words of the, the title, Time to Listen, it's a call to action and uh, it's a book that uh, stems from uh, an ongoing process of uh, deliberate forgetfulness. Yes, that's right. Uh, Melissa and I actually believe that Australian in general have failed to listen to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people over not just generations and decades, but in fact over the last 200 plus years and it's formed what the anthropologist Stanner called the Great Australian Silence. And our argument is that it's time to rupture that silence by listening. And the best way to listen is by having a voice to Parliament. And the calls for voice go very, very far in Australian history because you actually trace it uh, back to the 1800s uh, with uh, the petitions to the king. Petitions, one of them, the most famous one you elicit in the book, is uh, one by William Barrack. 
and uh, you go to explain also the petitions by William Cooper and uh, other actually leaders of uh, Aboriginal rights who are calling for not only um, to be heard but also to address and redress uh, the mistreatment of uh, First Nations peoples. Absolutely. We, we would argue that there have been a series of consistent, um, pragmatic approaches by Aboriginal people across, as I said, generations, where they have requested for them to be heard. Um, as we said, we start with William Barak, we talk about the Cooper petition. All of these things are mechanisms by which Aboriginal people were saying, we need to be heard on the issues that relate to us. And we, with Melissa and I, see the voice to parliament and the Uluru Statement from the Heart as being a logical extension of that very long historical process. Yeah, to put it in perspective again, the William Barak petition, which resulted in uh, the Corandak petition, actually, uh, yes. was in the 1800s. William Cooper, end of the 1800s, beginning of the uh, 20th century, and uh, many other calls resulted actually in some kind of uh, initial steps towards uh, addressing some of the issues, but never anything of value uh, came out of all these petitions and uh, ongoing calls for... I think there have been incremental changes along the way, and uh, certainly um, the Corrandirk petition resulted in you know, Aboriginal people at Corrandirk being heard um, and, and in some minor ways being accommodated. Cooper's petition, uh, which never actually was delivered, uh, importantly, I think, also at least highlighted the concerns that Aboriginal people had. And as we say in the book, what we're seeing here is a series of significant steps along the road where people, Aboriginal people have been saying our concerns for our people and our concerns about our future need to be heard. And that's where a voice is so crucially important. We can't be heard without a voice. We mentioned, uh, just going into history again, uh, the 1900s, 1900s, and fast forward to the 1990s, uh, 80s, 1980s and 90s, when some progress had been made. Uh, I can think about uh, the Marble case, uh, the win uh, about native title, and then successive governments end up rolling back some of the achievements that have been uh, hailed as groundbreaking, and governments just uh, roll them back. Exactly. And this is precisely why we are so convinced that the only way to make progress is through a successful referendum, which would change the constitution, because that can't be rolled back. Once that happens, the voice is there and people are heard. We've seen successive governments over the years choose to roll back. Um, You know, we think of something like John Howard's, uh, you know, basically destruction of, of ATSIC. Now, I'm not suggesting it wasn't without its problems, but certainly... ATSIC was fulfilling a lot of important roles in, uh, in, in terms of how it negotiated on behalf of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Yeah, you mentioned not only ATSIC, but also the First People's Congress that was also uh, That's right. dismantled uh, along the way. That's right. And there were also promises that were never kept. You speak about uh, Bob Hawke's uh, promise to have uh, a treaty by the 1990s, and this was never upheld. That's right. Um, And again, that was a very emotive, you know, delivered with a lot of fanfare and then absolutely nothing came of it. Ultimately, it did not eventuate and in fact it disappeared, you know, sort of 
without a whimper. Yeah. So promises are made, never delivered, and uh, the need for a constitutional voice, uh, a constitutional recognition has been uh, made. Uh, actually, you mentioned also a lot of uh, these calls, the uh, the calls also by the people of uh, the the Yolno people and uh, the Baronga statement in uh, the eighties, nineties, which yes. are, yeah. We would see, we see a logical progression. All of those statements, the earlier petitions, the, state, the Barunga statement, they're all, in a sense, they're all asking the same thing, and that is to be heard, um, and to be heard on the matters that matter and affect Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. In the book, you outline four main, um, actually, uh, I would say, positive aspects of uh, having a voice. You say the voice will uh, ensure constitutional recognition, it will uphold parliamentary supremacy and the efficient functioning of the executive, it fulfills requirements of international law, it reinstates self-determination. Can you elaborate on this for us? Well, the most important thing about the voice is it, it is enshrined in the constitution. So, in fact, yes, it does. It holds up the supremacy of the government It doesn't in, in, and parliament. It doesn't in any way override that. Um, one of the things that we, we say is nobody seems terribly concerned about things like the advisory committee or the roles that are um, formed by something like the Productivity Commission or indeed the Law Reform Commission. Both of these ad- offer advice to Parliament. Now, what we're thinking is a voice to Parliament would offer advice. Now, obviously, it is up to the government whether they take that advice. It doesn't have any financial, um, it, doesn't, it doesn't issue funding, it can't make policies, it can simply offer advice. Um, the most important thing as well is that we are falling behind in our, our in terms of our right, our human rights, Aboriginal people and Torres Strait Islanders' special rights um, under the UN Declaration, and we need this needs to be addressed. This is actually a very simple way to make sure that we are all on the same page, and that we are in fact fulfilling our rights uh, and indeed our international obligations. You mentioned in the book international examples of uh, a better relationship between uh, Indigenous people and uh, the colonial settler state. I think we would have to say at the moment the the relationship is spotty at best and we think that this would be a mechanism for ensuring that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are heard and that their, their rights are protected and that's the vital thing here, protecting. Yeah, you mentioned the Canadian example, the New Zealand example, and also some yep. successful, uh, actually, uh, deals signed by First Nations people in uh, the U.S. and the U.S. Some Absolutely. U.S. states and government. Yeah, this is a, a. To be perfectly frank, this is an uncontroversial proposal. It's really straightforward, and we can we only have to look at at the uh, certainly at our Commonwealth neighbours, so New Zealand and Canada. And indeed, America, where we have these agreements which have improved the lot of people, not not been controversial at all. In the book, you say that uh, the 1967 uh, referendum uh, was a success with a resounding uh, yes vote, but it did not go enough uh, in addressing uh, the various issues. Absolutely. Absolutely. It was the start, and I think it heralded the possibility of real change. But if we, as we do in the, in the essay, 
we we start to unpick it and we realise, well, not a lot did change. There are some things that, you know, were, un, again, uncontroversial, counting in the census. These are not things that are important. Um, but also, well, of course, they're terribly important, sorry, but these were uncontroversial things. Uh, but in terms of making changes that improve Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people's educational outcomes, health outcomes, housing outcomes, not so much has changed. And we believe that a voice to parliament will be at least a step in the right direction. We're not for a moment saying it's going to be the be all and end all. It will be a step in the right direction. Because to vote no is not to vote for the status quo. It's actually something much worse. That's uh, the message actually being uh, relayed by... Uh most of the uh, mainstream uh, commentators that a uh, voice would just set us back. And uh, you also, one thing that you highlight in the book is that the momentum and uh, call for a voice actually accelerated after some uh, tragic events like uh, uh, key moments in history, like the Royal Commission to Aboriginal Deaths in Custody and uh, the Bring Them Home report. And, uh, yes. Yeah. We can see uh, we can see the Uluru statement and the extraordinary work of Professor Marcia Langton and Professor Tom Karma in put producing the, the the comprehensive report on the uh, Uluru statement of the heart and the importance of having a voice to Parliament. We see that as a, a, again a consequence of a number of royal commissions and rather large and important surveys that have been undertaken, including as you said the separation of children from their families, the stolen sometimes referred to as the Stolen Children Report or the Bringing Them Home Report, I think those things are all leading us in the direction of a voice to Parliament. We see this as a next logical step in our country's history. You also highlight how a voice to Parliament would actually foster meaningful reconciliation, not just uh, some uh, symbolic gesture. It would be actually more meaningful and impactful on uh, yes. the mutual yeah, understanding. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, it looks, as I said, we don't think it necessarily goes far enough. It's actually a very conservative request. Um, I don't even think of it as a political statement. I actually think this is a very logical, historically sound, and frankly, it makes good sense just to make this the next consequence in the relationship between Australia's First Nations people and others. There's also a mention on uh, the other side of uh, the debate, those who are opposed to voice to parliament, uh, most uh, prominent amongst them. You highlight Lydia Thorpe, uh, Jacinta Price and uh, Mandine amongst uh, the First Nations, but also now on uh, the conservative side of politics, uh, a lot of voices are out there opposing uh, Indigenous voice to parliament. I think the most regrettable thing in that particularly is the the appalling statements from the conservative side of politics, which are stating, if you don't know, vote no, which I think is really astounding to promote ignorance uh, in preference to knowledge. Uh, it's, it, to me, that's a sh- it's quite shameful. If you don't know, find out. If you don't know, do some research. If you still vote no, fine, that's okay. But to suggest that people should vote no because they don't understand when there is a plethora of information out there is uh, pretty disappointing. Yeah, whereas uh, the First Nations actually uh, opponents like Lydia Thorpe uh, actually think it does not go far enough. That's uh, correct. That's, uh, and I think that's a really important thing 
to, to recognise that there are many Aboriginal people who do not think this goes far enough. That doesn't necessarily they'll vote, mean they'll vote no. They may actually swing round and vote yes. I'm not presuming that by any means. But I think it's important that people, given the opportunity, to understand what this is about and for us to recognise that for many people it doesn't go far enough. It's very conservative. And this was also mentioned by some of uh, the actually key players in uh, the conversations and dialogues leading up to the Uluru Statement from the Heart. Uh, I can think of uh, someone from Tasmania, Tiangi Brown, who said actually a call for voice is uh, one of the... uh, least the, the the easiest thing that uh, was requested one one thing that could be easily achieved and yet that's right there's all this debate going around it that's right i mean i certainly respect other people's opinions and those who don't agree with it that's i i respect that i don't have a problem with that i just at this point in time my 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 concerns are with our attempting to get this resolved in the positive Professor Lynette Russell, before I let you go, any closing thoughts? I, I go back to that statement I said, if you don't know, vote no. That's a really regrettable statement and I would really suggest if you don't know, please read and find out. There's a lot of information out there and a lot of misinformation out there too. So let's hope that people will actually read perhaps what we have written, but certainly what other people like Megan Davis and Marcia Langton have written as well. And I think your new book, Time to Listen, An Indigenous Voice to Parliament, is uh, one of the best books available out there. It's short, concise, and very well written in a language that's accessible to the general public. Well, thank you very much. We're very pleased to have written it. NITV Radio. Share our stories on Facebook. Now, if you want to listen to this conversation with Professor Lynette Russell again, it's already published on our website, sbs.com.au slash NITV radio. Now, time for another break and a song. But when we come back, we'll look at a review that seeks to unleash First Nations women economic potential in New South Wales. Stay tuned. Now you're listening to NITV Radio, coming to you from Nam on the Kulin Nation this Monday afternoon. Coming next, look at a review on how to unleash First Nations economic potential in New South Wales. Join the conversation on radio, online and mobile. You're with NITV Radio. The New South Wales Treasury has just released our Pathways to Prosperity First Nations Women's Economic Participation Review. The review is held as the first of its kind nationally and looks at First Nations women's economic opportunity. And to discuss this groundbreaking review, I'm joined by Sean Cummings, Director of First Nations Economic Wellbeing at the New South Wales Treasury. Sean, welcome to NITV Radio. Thanks for having me. Now, can you tell us about some of the key priorities identified uh, in the review to address uh, persistent barriers preventing First Nations women to realise their economic uh, potential and uh, fully participate in uh, the uh, New South Wales economy? Of course, and and uh, I, I think you're right in, in saying at, at the top that it's the first of its kind, and we're very proud of the fact that this particular report has been led by First Nations women and it's been a a truly self-determined report and we've been very fortunate to be guided by uh, the many First Nations women and girls across our state, Um, which, again, you you, you rightly put that the the purpose was really to understand 
the barriers to economic participation and looking at what opportunities there might be. Um, the report itself, similar to First Nations uh, understanding of, of time, doesn't just take a lineal approach to, to life. We, we have taken a cyclical approach to this report and really looked at the stages of life from from birth um, through to through school and, and work and becoming a, a parent and, and, and ageing and, and getting a job or starting a business and and really looking at what it is at each of these stages of life uh, that, that First Nations women need to be able to, I guess, access uh, economic opportunities that, that align with, with their aspirations and, and their potential. The five priority areas that, that we've identified in this report relate to um, thriving homes and communities. So looking at looking at home ownership, for example, and childcare, through to engagement in education. So looking at culturally safe and flexible education, as well as the role of community-led mentoring programs to help First Nations girls through their, their education journey. We then move into the workplace and looking at um, the requirements of employers to make sure that the environment that they create is safe for First Nations women um, to, to enter the workplace. Um, and, and also touching on things like entrepreneurship. So, so for First Nations women, they're much less likely to, to start a business. And we wanted to know why that is. And, uh, and some of the stories we heard and, and that are in the report as well and some fantastic case studies um, really identify what uh, what's needed to be able to facilitate that uh, that entry into self-employment and small business and social enterprise. Uh, but but the really important priority, I believe, uh, as a First Nations man myself, um, being guided by my mother through through my life, is the importance of First Nations female-led programs. And as I said at the top, Bertrand, that this particular report does exactly that. It places First Nations women at the centre um, of, of the report and, and the opportunities and barriers that have been identified have, have come from First Nations women and girls themselves. So one of the key priorities you identified is entrepreneurship and uh, you mentioned that uh, the review was co-designed with uh, First Nations women who are entrepreneurs and some of them really very successful ones. Can you tell us a word or two about uh, some of these uh, women who co-designed the review? Yeah, of course. I think um, one of the particular case studies which uh, uh, is is really fantastic to read because they've now won an award is is chocolate on purpose which um the 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 business owner there has uh, started a a social enterprise where there is a product there's a story culture is uh incorporated in the offering um and and there's this greater purpose which is to to give back to community um another one um Sharon Windsor, who's uh, who, who has a uh, a, a food-based business uh, in in Mudgee and, and now looking at products uh, uh, expanding uh, both domestically and internationally, and we're very lucky to have Sharon on our expert advisory panel. Um, but again, here's a business where yes, there's this uh, there's this quality product. However, 
uh, overlaid with that product is this cultural knowledge and understanding and, and sharing. Um, and, and that's really you know, important for, uh, for for Sharon. But but also there's this value add as a consumer to to be able to enjoy fine food but, but learn a bit more about First Nations culture as well. Another area you identified is uh, decision-making and uh, delivery of uh, programs that are increasing the First Nations women's economic participation. How is this going to be addressed? Well, I think there's a, a couple of important components here. And, and one is that we need to increase the rate of evaluation of First Nations women targeted programs, we need to better understand the impact that current investment is having um, and really looking at the impact it's having at a regional and a local level. So that's one really important component is to better understand how effective the programs that currently exist are. So then we can learn, and this again is really important to have First Nations women um driving this and, and, and sitting at the table is so then where programs that aren't as effective as they could be, um, they can be uh, altered, they can be changed, they can be improved, so then they're meeting the expectations of communities. Yeah, this review has identified uh, weaknesses and uh, opportunities. What next? It's a very good question and, and for us while we're very proud of, of the work we've done and, and I'm very proud of, of my team in, in Treasury and I'm very grateful for the expert advisory panel and, and, and everybody that's engaged with with this piece of work through consultation and, and, and sharing their stories. The real work starts now for us and that's around supporting and encouraging other government agencies and community organisations to develop programs that align with these priority areas. We need to do that. We can do that centrally um, at New South Wales Treasury. Um, so then we can ensure that the current and future programs, they align uh, with these priority areas and they also go some way to reducing the barriers that women are facing. Sean Cummings, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us on NITV Radio today about the Pathways to Prosperity, First Nations Women's Economic Participation Review. Thanks, Bertrand. NITV Radio, on radio, online and mobile. Welcome back. Now, 174 cultural items taken from a remote Indigenous community in the 1950s by an English anthropologist have been handed over to elders in what experts hope will prove to be a trigger for other museums to return similar materials. Members of uh, the Anindiliakwa community travelled to the English city of Manchester for the emotional ceremony. Later this year, the items will be returned to Groot Island, 50 kilometers off the Northern Territory coast. Ben Lewis reports. In the Grand Central Hall of Manchester Museum, three representatives of the Anandiliakwa community are embracing museum staff. This handover has been a moving process for all involved. Nolene Lalara is an Anandiliakwa elder. For me, it's uh, emotional. Really? And I'm so, uh, I'm just talking from my heart. 
very emotional to me. And I'm happy and I'm proud for my people. The 174 items being returned to country include baskets, spears, armbands and intricately decorated shell dolls, which have inspired the present-day Groot Island community to create new dolls, strengthening cross-generation bonds. Marcy Lalara is an Anandiliakwa woman. Um, we do our landing on country with the school kids, going out, collecting the shells, painting it with um, ochre, natural ochre. The kids loved it and making it live, and we carry on like following our ancestors' footprints. The items had been collected in the 1950s by English anthropologist Professor Peter Worsley. His daughter Deborah attended today's handover, meeting the descendants of women his father had often mentioned to her during childhood. I'd heard about the stories of being on route all my life. You know, he continued to talk about that time all his life. I just wish he could know that this is what's happened. Professor Worsley donated his collection to Manchester Museum when he retired in the 80s. Over the past three years, museum experts travelled to Groot and worked with the Anandiliakwa Land Council to determine where the items should be kept. Georgina Young is the museum's head of collections. There is a different quality to a return process if you are dealing with real people face-to-face and really listening. And the kind of emotion that comes through in the ceremony today is kind of an emotion that's been carried through the whole period that we've been working together. And we know this stuff matters. We can feel it. It's hoped this close collaboration will serve as a model for future repatriation projects. Most British museums aren't as willing to facilitate the return of culturally significant items. Leonard Hill is the acting CEO of the Australian Institute of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Studies. Uh, Events such as this and uh, relationships and opportunities and returning material uh, such as this uh, provides a level of awareness, obviously, as to the importance of uh, returning cultural material back home. Uh, I hope it provides a bit of a trigger um, to other institutions that uh, there is genuine... uh, um, goodwill and and willingness uh, on communities uh, and institutions like IATSIS to work with partners overseas to return material. There are an estimated 39,000 Indigenous artefacts in museums across the United Kingdom. Manchester Museum has several hundred in its collection, so these 174 are just a drop in the ocean. But each individual item is of great importance to the community that receives it, as Anandiliakwa woman Amethia Mamarika explains. Seeing how um, ancestors' artefacts, and first time I've seen it, it's making me cry. The items will be welcomed home with a special ceremony later this year. In Manchester, Ben Lewis, SBS News. Visit sbs.com.au slash NITV radio. That's all from us on NITV radio this uh, Monday afternoon. Your program will be back on Wednesday and Friday and at the same time, 1 to 2 p.m. as always. I'm Bertrand Tungandame thanking you for staying with me this Monday afternoon. Till next time, bye for now. Yalu.